All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with the word of prayer. And if anyone else trickles in, Jim, if you could do the honors of directing this to the sheets, that would be great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to study your word tonight. I pray that you would help us to be engaged and uh, active. Um, this topic is certainly uh, far more vast than what our hour tonight allows. So I pray that you'd help us to um, try to stick with it and uh, cover lots of ground tonight together um, and understand who your Holy Spirit is and what role he plays in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so you'll notice, um, okay, just set aside the article that I have that says don't lose spiritual disciplines for fear of legalism. That is just fun reading for you uh, to set up our discussion for next week. But uh, we are transitioning in this class. Uh, We just completed the first four lessons. The first four lessons were titled Understanding the Gospel of Grace. We're moving into the next four, uh, the next set of lessons. The next four lessons are called Growing in Grace. We're going to talk about walking in the Spirit, uh, developing discipline of prayer and devotion, and then growing in the church. So that's where we're going the next four weeks. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. But what I'd like to do, since we're kind of in this transition, I'd like to take the opportunity just for the first couple minutes of the class to review the first four weeks, where we've come. I've just tried to highlight the essential thing that I hope that you would walk away from that lesson. If you don't remember anything else, my hope is that you would remember that. So week one, we talked about conversion, and I defined conversion as... A change of heart. Okay, change of heart. There's two sides of that change of heart. Away from something and then towards something. So what's the phrase that I use for the away from something side? The repentance side. Okay. Abandoning myself in sin. That's the repentance side and then the positive side of that, of conversion, is trusting or embracing God and His grace, right? And that is the faith side. So that's biblical conversion. You can't have repentance without faith, and you can't have faith without repentance. There are two sides of the same coin. Then the second week, we talked about the gospel. And what we tried to do in that second week is look at what is the core of the gospel that you must understand in order to be saved. And what I would like to attempt to do is, does anyone remember the five steps that we talked about? So there's, remember the pocket. You have five fingers, you have five things you need to walk through as you uh, share the gospel. First one was? God. God. And what what was at least one essential thing that people need to know about God? Creator. Okay? He's holy. At least have to get holy. The creator would be really nice because it sets the context for responsibility to that holy creator. But we could probably get away with the creator. But holy is definitely essential. What's the next one? So there's God, there's man and sin. And what do we need to know about that? At least one thing. We have to pray on for forgiveness. Okay. Everyone sinned. 
Okay. Everyone sinned. Everyone sinned against that holy creator. And therefore, that holy creator is going to judge us for being sinful. What was the third, the third finger, the third step or hook to hang our explanation of the gospel on? Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus Christ? What do we need to know about him? What, just one thing. There's lots, but... God, 100% man. Okay. Did, does someone really have to fully understand that? Because I don't think I fully understand that. Right? What? He paid the penalty. Okay. He died in our place, right? That would be a nice, simple way to put it. So there's God who's holy. There's man who's sinful. God is going to judge us. Jesus has taken our judgment. Right? That idea of substitution. Even though that's a big word, you get that that substitution idea. So there's God, man and sin, Jesus Christ. What was the fourth one? Response. Response. And what should our response be? I just gave that answer to you in the first thing. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And then the last one? Promise. Is promise. And what's the promise? Eternal life. Week three, we talked about our position in Christ. And we talked about that our position is that we are united with him. And we defined it something like this. It's the act of God through which the Holy Spirit connects us as believers to Christ and his church. And that has two significant results. We have a new identity or a new position. And we also have a new experience or a new power or a new practice. And we called this present experience in between um, A to Z, in between conversion and glorification, what? Progressive sanctification. And how would we define progressive sanctification? Okay. So what? Ongoing process of change. Okay, it's an ongoing process of change, but it's, we have to remember every week we, someone says it's an ongoing process of change, and that's good, but we have what are we changing to? Because we could be changing just to something different, but that's not necessarily good. Christ-likeness or holiness. So it is God, it's a present process of God making us holy. That's uh, progressive sanctification. We noted a couple important things that are good to keep in mind. It is progressive, right? It's an upward trajectory, even though there's ups and downs, the overall trajectory of one's Christian life is upwards towards holiness. Number two, it's inevitable. God promises that he will complete the good work that he started. But number three, it's not automatic, right? We have to exhaust ourselves in that effort. We must, as Second Peter 1 says, we must make every effort. We must, as Paul often says, press on, work. And then lastly, it's tough. Remember we noted that there's a spiritual war that is going on in us. Last week, we looked at the significance of baptism, and we said the main statement that we, we talked about said what? Water baptism is a physical of a, of a spiritual reality. And what's the spiritual reality that water baptism symbolizes? Union with Christ. It's our union with Christ, or our spirit, spirit baptism. The fact that we have been crucified with Christ and then raised with him, our old self, right? And then a new self. 
We have an old identity and a new identity. So we said that the spiritual reality is union with Christ. Therefore, if we understand the spiritual reality, we understand all those questions about who should be baptized, how should it happen, and all that. We said only believers should be baptized, right? Because an unbeliever has never gone through that spiritual reality. So only believers should be immersed in water, not for salvation, but to show the spiritual transformation that has begun. So now, we'll turn our attention to the goal of Lesson 5. You can flip the page over, and you've got a whole page to take notes on tonight. But the goal of our lesson tonight is, is kind of twofold. And I'm going to confess, as I was telling... Uh, actually, I should introduce you guys. The guy in the blue shirt over here, his name's Kurt Leonard. He is the pastor that I served with in Milwaukee for two years. He's the guy that God used to influence me to ever go to seminary. Um, we worked back when he was in seminary. I was leading the junior high youth group at Inner City, and I heard he played guitar. Um, and I'm not going to tell you stories about that. But uh, I heard he played guitar, and I needed someone to lead singing. And so I asked him if he would be willing to help work in the youth group. Well, one thing led to another. And he's over my house every night or, or every Monday night practicing guitar and for to lead singing and then all of a sudden we're talking theology and I'm teaching and he's teaching and he's like, Hey, you should consider going to seminary and now I'm done the seminary, then I got to go pastor with him and we got the dream about that. And now I'm back here. He's still in Milwaukee and coming back here for the conference I'm preaching. <laughs> for the next two days in inner city. So, whirlwind, but he's a pretty awesome dude, and I will not say any more, lest I embarrass him. So, the goal is to discover who this Holy Spirit is and what his role is in our lives. And what I was telling him on the way, and I said I wish I had like two or three weeks to cover this topic in order to do it justice. How in the world can we talk about who the Holy Spirit is in one lesson, let alone three, and then talk about his role in our lives? I mean, jeepers. I mean, so we got a lot to cover, and I'm going to try to keep it simple, but I, I would like to encourage you to hold on, and we're going to try to keep it simple, yet root everything we say in the text of Scripture and see how it goes, all right? So if we just blow your mind, I apologize. So I'd like to start our discussion with this, with this question. Which do you think is better? And I'm asking you to think carefully before you answer. And I'm not trying to trick you. Okay, I have to say that every week. Which do you think is better? Jesus beside you or the Spirit inside you? If you had to choose, which do you think you would choose? Jesus beside you or the Spirit inside you? I would say the spirit inside you because um, Jesus is beside you, but he's not always going to be beside you. The spirit's always going to be inside you if you're a believer. I don't know. So you're really throwing Jesus to the curb? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is Jesus. I mean, he's, he's, he's the God. I mean, how can you? I mean, he died for you. You're going to kick him to the curb. So that Jesus beside you or the Spirit inside you? Well, Jesus was beside Judas. So? So, I mean, just because you walk next to him doesn't make you a believer. 
Okay. You absolutely have to have the spirit inside you if you're a believer. Okay. Okay. Just to try to make sure I. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyone else? If I get your question correctly. Yeah. I. I don't know. I think I want Jesus because Jesus is God. Okay. I think the right answer is Holy Spirit, but I would like Jesus so I can see the awesome. Yeah. Know that He's there, even though I know what the Word says. I can. So you think the Word says gives us an answer to this question? Well, that we have the Holy Spirit. Okay. I always feel like it. Where if He's right here, I can say this. <laughs> Well, consider what what Jesus said. Did you want to say something? Now we're going to say something? Okay. Consider what Jesus says in John 16, verse 7. He says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. So in Jesus' estimation, as hard as it is for us to consider, like what Karen was saying, man, it sure would be nice to have some, like Jesus, the physical Jesus, like right in our presence. It sure would be nice. But Jesus says that it's for our good that he goes away to heaven and that we have the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Why, though? Why do you think that Jesus would write those words? Why does Jesus esteem the spirit inside of us better than him beside us? Any thoughts? I mean, some of you have alluded to it, probably not even realizing what you were saying. Is there more of a Faith and trust without him being there. Okay. Then you know, I'm trying to what the verse was. Uh, you know, blessed are those that believe in me and do not see. Okay. So it's like your faith is more genuine when you don't have the physical right next to you. Okay. Okay. Think that That's what we're doing here. So. Jesus was next to me, then he couldn't be next to you, or next to you, or next ah, to you. But he's, he's omnipresent, he can be everywhere. But can a, can a man be omnipresent? <clears throat> because if you Jesus want, did, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus did take on human flesh, right? So there was some sense in which, even though we don't understand this whole idea of God is, or Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, it's like, right? Right. But there's something, too, he allowed his deity in some way, we would have to say something, to the effect of being limited by his humanity. Right? right? Because he's, in a sense, he, ceased, he had to be cease the omnipresence thing, right? Right. He needed the fish memory, but... Thank you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Class clown over there. <laughs> Still. I think that that's a good point. If, if 
if you have Jesus, we, but that's not fair. You can't take him home with you tonight. Then what do I get? I get nothing. I think that's a good point. Well, to answer this question, why is having the Spirit better than having Jesus? Let's let's answer a few other questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? God. What were we saying? Okay, he's God dwelling in us. He is God. He is what sometimes we describe as a member of the Trinity or the Triune God. He's part of the Godhead. We refer to him as the third person of the Trinity. So God is what we call Triune. He is one God, eternally existing in three persons. Don't we don't have time to go into that, but just trust me on that one, okay? That's historic Orthodox evangelical theology. That there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each of those persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is equally God. Let me give you some text just to write down. We don't have time to to go mull over all of them. But Acts 5, verses 1 through 4, would be a text that you could use to see the deity or the godness of the Holy Spirit. There, Ananias is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira are are swindlers with their money. And there in that text, Peter equates the Holy Spirit and God. In one instance, he says, you guys lied to God. And then later on, or actually, he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then later on, he says, you didn't lie to humans, you lied to God. Well, if he's saying that you lied to the Holy Spirit and you lied to God, he's not saying that they're you lied to two different entities. He's saying that the Holy Spirit and God are the same. The Holy Spirit is God. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Just to summarize, in the very middle of that, verse 19, we read, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in three names, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that wouldn't make any sense, would it, if he said, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Troy Fisher? Because there's not equality in those three people, right? But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes sense because there's an equality. So he is God. But where is he? Where is the Holy Spirit? And obviously, okay, you can say he's everywhere, he's omnipresent, right? But there but but scripture describes him having a certain location. This is again inside of Okay, he is inside of us. We could say this. The answer, where is he now? He's inside every believer from the moment of conversion. He's inside every believer from the moment of conversion. This is what uh, theologians sometimes call indwelling. It's a theological term called indwelling. It's the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 
Listen as I read a couple texts. And you might just want to jot the references down and you can look at them in more detail later on. But John 14, verses 15 through 17. John 14, 15 through 17 says this. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And that's speaking of relationship, just not, not just knowledge, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So there is the spirit of God having been sent by Jesus once he leaves, right? Once he ascends into heaven and we have this permanent forever presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling a believer. 1 Corinthians 6.19, which this is a unique, and we can talk about this later if you're interested, this is a unique text that provides a theological proof for the Holy Spirit's deity, but it's also a proof for his indwelling in every believer. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own? 1 Corinthians 6.19. And lastly, Romans 8. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So what that verse is saying is that true believers have the spirit of God. Unbelievers do not have the spirit of God. There's no concept in scripture of uh, a spirit less believer. So, if you were to be asked the question again, where is the Spirit now? You'd say He's inside every believer. And you could say that with at least three proof texts. John 14, 1 Corinthians 6, and Romans 8. So a little bit more tricky question. Those are a little bit softball-like, all right? What does the Spirit do? He does a lot of things, right? But what does the Spirit do? What are some of those things? Kind of. You said comfort? Sort of like our conscience. Sort of like our conscience. Okay. But he... He has no... Sorrow for sin that we commit. Maybe we don't have the spirit now. Okay. The train. <laughs> Again. Here? It might be done by the time we go. <laughs> it might be. We got we got we got thirty minutes, thirty plus. Okay, let me let me this is where it could get a little complicated, but um, here would be my and a way to answer, and then I'll explain it, and I'll give you illustrations, and I think you'll get it. The Holy Spirit, he is the executing agent of the Godhead. He is the executing agent of the Godhead. What does the Holy Spirit do? He executes God's plan. He executes God's plan. And we can see this in a number of ways. Um, and we'll look at just, I'll, I'll mention several. 
For those of you that love theology, there's something called an ontological trinity and the economic trinity. The economic is this idea of each member, each person of the trinity has kind of a function or a role. For those of you that don't understand that, don't worry about it. But the, the Holy Spirit has a specific role within the Godhead. They're a unity, but remember that they are distinct persons. And so each distinct person has kind of its thing. And the Spirit's thing is to execute the plan of God. For instance, you can see this in the writing of Scripture, the authorship of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. We'd all say it's God's holy word, right? God, God breathed, right? But God breathed, and the Holy Spirit was the one who was executing the process of authoring that word. Second uh, Peter one twenty one says, "For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So there's this Holy Spirit working out the authorship and writing of the Scripture. Okay, so it can be seen in the writing of Scripture. It can be seen in the salvation of man. God, we know Ephesians one was the planner of scripture uh, of salvation, right? Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Say what? Yeah. So he planned it. Christ died to make it all happen or make it all possible, but how do you actually receive any of the benefits of that? Of Christ's work and God's plan? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you. John 16, 7 through 11. Listen as I read. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate slash Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. So there's a conviction that happens. Conviction is pre-salvation, right? That's pre-our salvation experience of faith and repentance. We're not going to repent and believe of that which we're not convicted of, right? Or proved. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 talks about the Spirit's work of regeneration. It doesn't use the term regeneration, but it says, verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And one more text that you could jot down is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And there it talks about, it uses the term sanctifying work of the Spirit. And not to confuse you, but sometimes when the script, and actually more times than not, when the scriptures use the idea of sanctification, it uses it of the initial setting apart of that believer away from sin and unto God. Not in the progressive sense that we've been talking about. But Second Thessalonians 2.13 would be another text. So we've seen in the authorship of scripture, in salvation, we could also see 
the Spirit's work, what does he do in the security of believers? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. He is signed, sealed, and delivered. Your salvation is secure because you have the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. We see it in the gifting, the spiritual gifting of believers. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 7. They are called gifts of the Spirit. Capital S. They are spiritual gifts. Capital S. Right? Because they come from the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one, verse 4, that distributes those gifts. So we see the Spirit executing God's plan. And then, where it comes down to, gets into the role of the Spirit in our sanctification, we see it even in sanctification. So, progressive sanctification. I would like you to try to write at least some nuggets of this definition down, because I will allude back to it later on. Progressive sanctification, to give you a little bit more full definition than what we've talked about uh, so far. It is the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. It is the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. So it is a cooperation. It is the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer whereby the believer becomes more Christ-like, or the believer becomes more holy. The believer becomes more and more like God. So, progressive sanctification, giving a little bit more fuller definition, is the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer, whereby the believer becomes more and more like Christ. More and more holy. In the text that your assignment or your uh, your chapter gave, that kind of almost gave it as the chief text to support this, was Ephesians five eighteen. And Ephesians five eighteen says, "Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Instead, be filled with the Spirit." So I ask, what on earth? Does Paul mean here when he says that believers are to be filled with the Spirit? Because this is the only time, if I can recall correctly in my study, that the only time in Scripture where he says to be filled with the Spirit. I think. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. So what does that mean? Be controlled by. Okay. I mean, that... that... Yield to... Okay, I mean, to be controlled is actually a pretty popular idea, right? Because it, 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 it sort of parallels the idea of, well, we don't want to be controlled by some sort of intoxicating influence, right? So it would be better to be controlled by spirit. Any 
Any other ideas? We're zoning over here, so uh, I might pick on somebody. Pete's going to step up, I can tell. I'm just thinking, being, uh, when you think of the, the, that text, when you think of, you know, drunkenness, it's out of control. And when you're controlled by the Spirit, that's more being in line of having control. Okay. So. Okay. <clears throat> To, to ease, no? Um, basically having it be so much a part of you that it's just a natural part of your life. Okay. I actually like that, and you'll see how that kind of dovetails to what I'm going to, how I'm going to define it. To ease all of your hearts a little bit, this is a highly debatable, uh, debated phrase. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. I can tell you what I, I think is, is a bogus understanding of this. To think of us as believers as like an empty cup. Or a, a cup that's only a third filled with the Holy Spirit. And somehow we either need to get the Holy Spirit or get more of the Holy Spirit. As if we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. Like you can take him in, in certain amounts of doses. Like when you become a Christian you get... Like just, you know, a teaspoon of the Holy Spirit and then you need to continue on taking teaspoons of the Holy Spirit until you are controlled by the Spirit or something like that. I think that's a bogus way to look at it. The way I I prefer to see it is slightly nuanced away from the idea of control. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why, but here's what I think is... The way I like to look at it, Dr. Combs, I'm following Dr. Combs. He just wrote a journal article last year on it. Um, I think it means something more along the lines of our lives as believers are being filled up with the character of the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, our lives are more and more reflecting the character of the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense in which our lives are progressively becoming like Christ. We are progressively bearing his image we are progressively emulating the character of the holy spirit we are progressively more and more um, bearing the fruit of the spirit I was just going to mention that. <laughs> from galatians 5:22 yeah so um, i think so i think to be filled with the holy spirit i guess i don't want to dive into this too much but the idea of control concerns me because what I think can happen is that can lead down this road of, okay, and I, I confess, I've, I've often thought of the Holy Spirit's filling this way. I always equated it to control and then said, okay, it's as if I go and I sit in the passenger seat of my life and I put the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat and he takes the wheel, he takes the gas and the brake and he goes. And I'm just essentially along for the ride. But the imagery there for me breaks down because what I find is that that makes me a passive participant in my progressive sanctification. And I don't believe that the Bible, and we're going to talk about this tension later, but I don't believe the Bible allows for that passivity in my progressive sanctification. So I think that the filling here is an idea of I'm progressively becoming more and more like the Holy Spirit. As Paul 
or I'm sorry, as Pastor Ken, he's not Paul, uh, <laughs> as Pastor Ken has said, that we are image bearers, right? But we are cracked mirrors made to reflect the image of God back to God. Well, we are progressively doing that better. You could think of it that way. So this leads to the question then, uh, our last question for the night, which is going to be the longest, is how does the Spirit accomplish this work of progressive sanctification in us? How does he do his work? Through the Word of God. Okay, yeah, we can't separate it from the Word of God. That's that's kind of big, right? John seventeen seventeen. Jesus says, Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. So the process of sanctifying or setting believers apart is the word is through the word of God. And there's other texts that we could look at. The whole purpose of the word of God in as Timoth- or as Paul writes to Timothy, it's to present a man was it fully or thoroughly furnished as the King James says? Equipped. He's a mature man. So how does he accomplish his work? Let me give you three statements, and uh, these are not exhaustive, but here's three. Number one, he breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. He breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. So the first way the Spirit begins to work this process of sanctification in us is that he breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. He breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. Listen as I read Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. This will be, I think, week three in a row of reading Romans 6. It is an important, important text in the life of a believer. Listen as I read. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. Verse 6, for we know that our old self, that is our old identity in Adam, that man that was enslaved to sin, was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So there's some sense in which when we were united to Christ, or united with Christ in his death, that slavery, that reign of sin in us was broken. Sin no longer had complete and utter control and power over us. Verse 8, I believe. Maybe, yeah. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's practical stuff. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. And number one, how does the Spirit do this work of progressive sanctification in you and I? Number one, he breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. Number two, he empowers us to obey the word. By giving us a new nature, he empowers us to obey the word by giving us a new nature. Number two, he empowers us to obey the word by giving us a new nature. He empowers us to obey the word by giving us a new nature. He empowers us to obey the word by giving us a new nature. Linda said, when I first asked the question, how does he work in us? She said, the word of God. And that's absolutely right. He teaches us, I mean, we have to know what the word of God says. We have to have a power to obey the word of God. And apart from salvation, apart from regeneration, we do not have that ability. But when we become believers... We are empowered by the Spirit to obey because He has given us a new nature. He has come and indwelt us. He has come and made His home in our hearts, empowering us to obey. Listen to Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. This is a long section, but listen as as I read. There's going to be three or four things I want to highlight. Verse 13, you are my you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are... So that you are not to do whatever you want. Sorry, I had that in a different version in my mind. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Think about what Paul just said there this way. Before you were a believer, you were a slave to sin, right? So there was not a battle inside. Because you were enslaved to sin. All you were was an old man in Adam with an old nature that dominated you. But when you became a, a believer, that the, the reign of sin was crucified. It no longer has slavery and bondage and power over you. Certainly it still influences our life and is still a big time struggle as we walk through this life, as we see in the text of in the pages of the scriptures. But the power of that sin has been broken, and now there's a battle. Your heart is a battlefield. And we see that when he says, the spirit, your new nature, the new nature that he brings, and the flesh, 
your old nature, they are in conflict with each other. Now verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I don't believe that he's talking about when he says that you, when you are led by the Spirit, that certainly there's present ramifications of that, but there, there's a dichotomy, there's, a, there's polar opposites here. You're either in the realm of being led by the Spirit, your life is being led because you are indwelt by the Spirit, or your life is enslaved to the law. That's what he's saying. So there's this positional change, right? From being enslaved to the law to being led by the Spirit. Verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not of the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, live like this, whose lives are characterized by this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice Paul did not say that any one of these individual sins could never have been committed by a believer. Because if you and I are honest with ourselves, the seeds of this kind of stuff, even if we aren't committing these things, the seeds of these sins are things that we all struggle with, right? I mean, we, we look back and we think sexual morality, impurity, debauchery. What's the seed of that? I mean, it's self-gratification, right? It, it's, it's putting me on the throne and removing everything else. What about idolatry, witchcraft? I mean, that, that's me idolizing self. If we all were assess, able to assess our hearts honestly, couldn't we all find the seed of that sort of sin in our hearts? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, this is the production of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, of course. I mean, who would write a law against those? That's stupid. My son would stop me and tell me that I broke the law by saying stupid. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, no longer by the law, let us then obey the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So, how does the Spirit do His work of progressive sanctification? Number one, He breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. Number two, He empowers us. He gives us life in order to obey the Word by giving us a new nature. And then three, remember how I said progressive sanctification is the cooperation, the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer, right? We're not passive participants. We're just, we're not just sitting there waiting for God to zap us and poof, we become holy. So number three, we must obey the word between the already and the not yet. We must obey the word between the already and the not yet. What? We must obey the word between the already and the not yet. And I will explain that because most of you have no idea what I'm saying. 
we must obey the word between the already and the not yet. As we've already said, the word of God is the thing that God, the spirit, uses to shape us and change us. Okay, but here's the reality. Some of us are very logical black and white thinkers. So this point is a little bit difficult for us because we, as black and white thinkers, we don't like tensions. We don't like gray, right? We don't like, yeah, well, it's kind of like this and it's kind of like this. It's already, but it's not yet. We don't, we can't wrap our, our logical minds around that. So this is going to be a little bit hard, but here's some tensions that we have to keep in mind in this whole thing called progressive sanctification, is God's sovereignty and our responsibility, right? Because God is at work in us through his spirit doing a good work. Yet we are working. How does that one work? I don't know. I'm sorry to burst your (laughs) balloon, but I can't give you the intricate details of how that tension works, but that tension exists. Because we we're we are our lives become error prone when we say, Oh, well God's sovereign, He's gonna do his work, and so we sit back and we just wait. Because then we're disobeying tons and tons of passages of scripture that say make every effort. But then on the other side, we say, Well, we're responsible we are. But then all of a sudden we become legalists. Like, we gotta do, we gotta do, we gotta do, we gotta do. We gotta live this perfect life in order to be holy. Right? And so, we have to hold these two things in the right tension. We have to see the gray. We have to say, God, you're sovereign. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. And we're responsible. Because in verse 12, Paul says, Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's us doing the hard work of sanctification. Verse 13, he says, But for it's God who is at work in you, to will and to act according to his good pleasure. There's the tension. We have to hold them both. Listen to Colossians chapter 3. I would love to read this whole section to you, but let, because it's, it's beautiful. Verses 1 through 17. Read it at home when you get a chance. But let me just read some of the, the, the sovereignty responsibility. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. He did that for you, right? He united you with Christ. But then he says, verse 5, just two verses later, put to death. All sorts of bad things. And then he says, three verses later, You must rid yourselves of all these bad things. Do not lie. Okay. So, responsibility. Then he says, verse 9, after he says, do not lie. Why should you not lie? Because he's done this work in you. He has crucified your old self. And he has given you a new self. He has taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on a new self. Then go down to verse 12 and he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, 
Bear with each other and forgive each other. Put on love. Be thankful. Let Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. Whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Do you see the tension? We have to have the tension in our lives. We have to. Galatians. The text that we just spent a ton of time looking at. Galatians 5. It simultaneously said... You're led by the Spirit. But it also said, walk by the Spirit. In other words, obey the Spirit. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not. So if you obey the Spirit, you're not, obviously, gratifying the desires of the flesh. Since we, verse 25, live by the Spirit, so you already have this life given by the Spirit, regeneration, let us, therefore, keep in step with the Spirit. Sovereignty, responsibility, God's work, our work. It's a cooperation. The Spirit and the believer are simultaneously at work. The Spirit produces the fruit, and we obey, evidencing the fruit. So there's one tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The next tension is between my already position and my not yet experience. My already position and my not yet experience. A few weeks ago, we talked about our union with Christ. We also talked about this thing called justification. And justification is the process by which God declares us righteous. So there's a sense in which, in God's eyes, he views us through the lens of Christ. It's as if, and this isn't a perfect illustration, but it's as if, Prior to your salvation, God viewed you and saw you as the ugly sinner that you are. But, and God has multiple ways of viewing us. But when we become believers, we are now clothed in Christ's righteousness. So when God views us, he looks at us through the lenses of Jesus, and he sees us as declared righteous. But how many of you are perfectly 100% Jesus righteous right now? I don't see any hands. Because you see, while we are already declared righteous, we are not yet righteous. While we are already holy in God's sight, while we are already seated in the heavenly places, while we are already enthroned with Christ, we are not yet there in our experience, fully and finally, right? Look with me or just read with listen to me as if we have time, to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. John says there, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is a sweet verse. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. He has taken the the fireman's hose of spiritual blessing, and he has just completely and utterly drenched us with God's with his blessing. He has lavished his love on us, and we are now called his children. And that is what we are, right? We are God's children. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So in other words, there's a disconnect between our present experience and what we are and what we will be. Even though we are children of God, we do not fully enjoy all of those benefits, right? 
Correct? Right. Yes? So what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, so we have we can have complete and utter confidence that when Christ returns, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we're stuck in this in-between, between what we've already been declared and yet are not yet experienced, this tension. In verse 3, John says, All who have this hope, don't just sit back and relax. And say, yep, I'm good, right? Because God's love is lavished on me and I'm his child. So I can just sit back and relax. He says, no. All who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. So in between the already and the not yet, we must purify ourselves. Man, I wish we had time for these, uh, but we don't. I'll only ask you one. I have three questions that are kind of, okay, so let's tease this out. Let's um, think about it. I'll actually read them real fast. Number one, how would you respond to someone who, who said that to be truly spiritual, to take the next step in the Christian life, you need to commit your life to God and he will give you the Holy Spirit? wrong, right? Because if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, right? There's no spirit less believer. Number two, how would you respond to someone who said that to gain victory over sin, you need to let go and let God. Let go and let God do his work in you. You just need a little bit more of the spirit. Based on what I just got done saying with the tension thing, right? We have to say that's that's not right as well, correct? Mm-hmm. What? Says so you can have some of the spirit, right? And three, I think this is probably a little bit more. Uh, we've been conditioned to reject number one and number two, but I think some of us silently—I know that I—I can tend to do this myself and unknowingly. Um, how would you respond to someone who said that I just didn't have the power to say no, to not sin? I think all of us struggle with that, don't we? Like, we just feel so weak. But here's, the, here's the, 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 the fear that we have to guard against. It's not blaming God for our sin. You see, God has given us all of the Holy Spirit, hasn't he? He's given us 100% of the Spirit that we need. So we have the ability to please God. So when we don't please God, it's not his fault. We have to eradicate that from our thinking because that's unbiblical, faulty thinking. When we choose to please self and our sinful nature, not God, it's us doing it. It's not God. Because God has given us the powerful Holy Spirit. He's not given Betty a more powerful spirit because she's super nice to my kids than, <laughs> than Wanda, who wouldn't give Hadley... You know, snacks two weeks ago. I'm just kidding. Wanda was actually, Wanda was more filled with the Spirit that night because, I'm just kidding. But you get what I'm saying, right? We can't blame God because one person is more spiritual than another person. So, is your life progressively reflecting the character of the Holy Spirit? Are the fruit of the Spirit the characteristic of your life? If, if your spouse was put in a room and the light 
was shining or your best friend was put in a room, the light was bearing down on their face, and, and you said, characterize the life of this person. Would that be the, the character that they would say you, you emulate? Of course not perfectly. I don't know if Mallory would say that of me. I'm pretty confident she wouldn't. Not because she's a bad person, just because I'm a bad person. But let me encourage you, you all have the power that you need to obey God's word because you have the powerful Holy Spirit of God. You have God in you. So be encouraged by that. You have God himself living in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You will not obey perfectly in this life. But you have the power to obey him and to bring him glory. So make it your goal to keep in step with him. Which is a relentless. It must be relentless. Moment by moment, you must be sensitive to and submissive to the Holy Spirit. So let's let's practice that. Let's have a relentless moment by moment pursuit of submitting to the Holy Spirit. Were you going to say something? Yeah, you, when you were talking about the uh, conflict, you know, between uh, the flesh and the Spirit, it just reminded me of uh, Matthew twenty six verse forty one, the Gethsemane portion where. Uh, Jesus was talking to Peter and he said watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation the spirit is willing but the mm-hmm. flesh is weak mm-hmm. and that just kind of summarized it for me yeah yeah, that's a good point so if I, if I circled it all back to this so which is better Jesus beside you or the Holy Spirit inside of you it's kind of hard to turn down Jesus right But Jesus himself said, the spirit inside of you, because we have the power of God in us, changing us. And that is awesome, awesome news. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to look at this amazing gift that you've given to us in the Holy Spirit. Thank you that he is a permanent resident in all genuine believers. That we have no fear of him uh, vacating our hearts. Um, And we have no fear that Um, he will ever leave because we have him forever as your word says and he is powerfully at work changing us into your image so may we um, do and be on board with that cooperative work not ever sitting back not ever working um, to be right with you in a legalistic sense but help us to to do that hard work um, of humble dependence on your spirit, that relentless everyday, moment-by-moment pursuit of, of submission to your spirit, dependent obedience. Help us to live that way. In your name we pray. Amen.